0: For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive.
2: Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. Our guest today is Eric Paulson. He is lab manager at Infinite Chemical Analysis Labs in California. We're going to talk to him a little bit about what's going on in the laboratory space for cannabis. We've covered a couple of different Kind of angles over time, but it's really uh, a dynamic part of the industry. It's um, you know labs are in an interesting position of being both kind of the clients of um, a lot of the producers and growers, uh, but they're also there to you know help support industry regulations um, and obviously perform a general public safety checkpoint and making sure that we're producing products that not only. You know, say what they are. Actually, they are what they say they are, but uh, are you know safe and effective, and are you know are not uh, not going to cause harm to the general community. So excited for this conversation and kind of hearing what's going on with laboratories in the California market and really what's um, you know kind of what are the trends and what are the dynamics. Always an interesting conversation. With that, Eric, welcome to the program.
3: Well thank you for having me
2: on, Bruce. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So before we kind of jump into what's going on with labs today, let's get a little background, uh, learn a little bit about you, how you got into uh, laboratory work, how you got into cannabis. Give us the backstory.
3: Oh, sure. So, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I've always liked science. Uh, from a very young age, my dad is a research scientist. And so, you know, I always knew I wanted to be in the in the science space. Uh, went to, you know, get my undergraduate degree. And I actually Ended up going to become a high school chemistry teacher from from there. Oh, yeah, and uh, I, I did that for about five years. It, it was it was enjoyable. I love explaining things to people. I just missed kind of doing science, and so so for that reason, I left and uh, went to go get my my doctorate at uh, San Diego State. And uh, when, while I was there, I met uh, the co founders of Infinite Chemical Analysis Labs, uh, Dave and Josh. And, you know, I got I got really excited about what they were working on, kind of bringing integrity and authenticity to the, to the lab space. And it's not to say that it's not there, but it's not nearly as prevalent <laughs> as we would like. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's at the end of the day about public safety. So so I was excited to kind of be a part of that. And I came right here when I when I graduated and then I've, I've been here since. Yeah.
2: And so just for folks that maybe don't know kind of the lab space for cannabis as uh, well as some of the other sectors of this industry, what, what is the role
3: of labs? What role do labs
2: play in kind of the cannabis market these days?
3: Uh, sure. So so generally, the role of labs play is every product that's put on the shelf has to go through what's called compliance testing. And mm-hmm. so that means um, that once a product is ready to uh, to distribute to dispensaries and retail outlets, the client or the, the producer contacts a lab and they, they set up this compliance uh, pickup and testing. So, you know, the, the lab then goes and picks up samples from from that final product batch, uh, kind of really randomly selects samples uh, mm-hmm. and submits them to a full panel of uh, both safety and kind of uh, profiling tests including you know the potency analysis of, of each of the cannabinoids, the major cannabinoids, as well as pesticide screening, residual solvents, heavy metals, microbial, any kind of mold or yeast that's growing on the, the material. So it's a, it's a relatively comprehensive set of tests that uh, kind of deem this product safe for consumption and kind of is supposed to is meant to assure the, the consumer that they're they're really take, getting a safe product. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that? I guess like what what's the actual
2: laboratory process, and and how are you validating these things? And what what's the kind of underlying kind of technology or process that you use?
3: Uh, sure. So so really, for each analysis, we have uh, you know a different set of instruments that are kind of tuned and calibrated uh, specifically for those compounds that we look for. Uh, you know the each state regulatory agency kind of uh, gives out a list of compounds and a list of, if they're toxic compounds, a list of action limits that each of these compounds needs to kind of conform to. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, we, we go through a rigorous validation process on each of those instruments with each of those compounds to make sure that we're quantitating them accurately in all the different, you know, sample types and matrices that that we typically receive, we have to make sure that for each of those things that there's not kind of some weird aspect to it that would make the the compound be under or over quantified. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's kind of a long process. You have to go through what's called an ISO accreditation. California is required. It most most states have the minimum requirement that you need to be ISO 17025 accredited so you have an independent auditor come out and and check on that and generally states will also have their own auditors come check out the labs and and make sure that that uh, the processes are kind of meet some kind of minimum standard got it and so, I guess, who hires you? Like,
2: how how does the process work in terms of you know producers, you know growers, producers, processors that want to get these things tested? How do they go about finding a lab? What does that engagement look like?
3: Yeah, so typically, you know, we have we have salespeople and we go out and uh, talk to clients, and you know maybe it's a new client or that that just opened up, and we heard about it through the grapevine. A lot of times, we have clients that refer other clients to us you know, because they like our service. Uh, and in other cases, there may be a, a producer that's setting up in a certain region and they decide, Hey, you know, I, I'm in San Diego, let's go to infinite. They're, they're in San Diego as well. So, you know, it's kind of a convenience thing. I mean, you can, you can find labs on Google, uh, very easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially nowadays, especially in California, we've got, a. Uh, we've got an overabundance of, of testing labs. <laughs> yeah. T- so talk to me about that. Like why, why is that? How have
2: kind of the, how has the lab industry kind of grown and changed over the years?
3: Oh boy. It's, it's changed a lot even since I've been here. So California has been, uh, uh you know, legal cannabis uh, was authorized in 2016. Uh, we opened before it was, it was, you know, just before it was actually legal. So we've been in the game this whole time, but, uh, You know, in the meantime, I think in the last year, I want to say an additional eight labs were added, and so we're up. We're up at a total of forty labs in California, and this is only for a number of compliance tests. I believe it's around two thousand a week. So, you know, divide two thousand by forty. If my math is is correct, that's (laughs) about fifty compliance samples a week. That's not Uh enough to sustain uh, most labs. Yeah. Um, Now. I will say that's not our only source of income, you know, generally for every client if they want to make sure that their compliance tests are going to go the way they want them to, that they've got to do R&D testing is what we call it, okay? And, and so that's that's sending in samples prior to doing the compliance and checking, you know, they may do full panel tests or they may only want to, you know, run the sample for pesticides because they're concerned about that. And so we do the R&D testing and that Actually comprises quite a bit of our, um, our revenue, but but you know there's definitely too many labs. Uh, you know I would argue that the amount of testing that's done in the state could probably be handled by around ten labs, say ten to fifteen labs,
2: yeah.
3: uh, easily. So what is the effect then on on
2: the industry right now of having this kind of abundance of laboratory facilities? You know, an oversupply of laboratory facilities. How how has that kind of changed the dynamics of the industry?
3: Uh, so. You know, I, I think the, the yeah, with more labs comes more competition, and the tricky part is that competition kind of runs, I guess, perpendicular to public health. Yeah. Because you know, labs get desperate, and it's gotten so ubiquitous that you know, even in the last six months, we've had a drop some uh, a lot of our prices. Um, other labs are doing the same, but another way to and, and you could say a kind of a shady way to yeah. to compete is to well do two things under report the bad compounds that you're analyzing. Uh-huh. Right. For the on the safety side of things um, and then over report the THC percentage of mm-hmm. of your products. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately for consumers the, that in, in this kind of day and age, uh, THC percentage is what they look for oftentimes, mm-hmm. and that is no more prevalent than that that we see in in flower um, cannabis flowers. So mm-hmm. because there's a lot of room to work with, yeah. and so you know as far as the regulations go, one of the the safeguards you could say that they put in to kind of mitigate any kind of random increases in potency is by by having a label claim. So if you label your product at you know, say 30% THC um, and the lab comes back and says, no, that's only 25%. Well, that's, that's outside the 10% variance range uh, mm-hmm. that the state allows. And so it's, it's required the, the, the producer then relabel the product. But, you know, as these producers and, and growers have figured out is that as long as you can go and do your R&D testing with that same lab that you're going to do the compliance testing with and assume that the the lab's going to be consistent, then, you know, really you can label at whatever number that the, the lab says you can label at. And, you know, if labs are being unscrupulous and yeah. increasing potencies, then they know their ways around that. And, and why,
2: why does that help the producer, the cultivator, or the processor to... To have a higher percentage, I mean, it's just because they can sell it for a higher rate. I mean, what what is the economic force that's play here?
3: Yeah, so I, I think I think it's re- it really comes down to the dispensaries. You know, the dispensaries basically post. You know, they label every single product that's on the shelf. They give the THC value. You know, if if you look online at the dispensaries uh, lists, you can sort by THC low. You know, high to low. They've really made THC concentration kind of integral way, you know, a selective selecting process, I guess, in which you can choose your product. And so if you want to get at the top of that list, you better, uh, you better have high potency numbers. Yeah. Um, we've actually seen, we've talked to dispensaries that are basically, you know, maybe a few years ago, they were able to put some flour on the, on the shelf that was under 20%. But now, because so many uh, f- people are labeling above that, they won't even accept that.
2: Yeah. Interesting. So there's a the pressure on the market that the demand from consumers is, is very kind of THC percentage focus. So then that transfers to the dispensary, which then transfers to the lab, you know, because they're or to the producer who transfers to the lab saying, look, we've got to get these we got to get these numbers up. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to sell this product. So so a company that I mean, if they're hoping that they have a, you know, a 30 plus THC percentage and you come back to them and say, you know, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, this thing is only 17 and a half percent. Like, what do they do? What is their option? Is there, are they they have to convert it into um you know biomass and grind it up and make edibles, or what do they what do they do with product that doesn't hit well, the numbers?
3: If they're doing that on on an R and D level, then they can they can just go to another lab. Really, that's kind of how it is. So, I actually went to uh, the Hall of Flowers Expo. It's yeah. kind of a you know grower and producer expo. You must be familiar with it, but yep. um, it was just a couple it, weeks ago. Yeah, it was it actually was last week. Yeah. Um, up in Santa Rosa and. They, uh, I talked to a, a, a grower, and you know, you know, we're, we're up there, you know, talking to clients, trying to drum up some business. But mm-hmm. um, this, you know, this particular grower, he said that he tests with four labs at the moment. And what he does is he, he was upfront with us with this. Yeah. What he does is send this same sample to all four different labs see which number comes back the highest, and then decide to go forward with that lab for that week. And they would go and, and constantly be retesting with, with each lab for each batch. And he would even say that, oh, we know that this lab just calibrated their, their instruments, so we're not going to go with them this week. <laughs> Meaning that a well-calibrated <laughs> instrument is going to be lower. Because it's going to be more accurate. <laughs> yeah,
2: so they so they, they can't play the game of, well instruments kind of get off calibration. So if I have something that hasn't been calibrated for a while, I make it lucky and it may show me a higher THC than I actually have. Exactly. We're going to take a quick break to hear some words from our sponsors. And now back to our program. So the growers literally just shop the market. So they say, look, I've, I've got a batch. I'm just going to send it out to multiple labs and I'm just going to pick the one that happens to come back with the highest number.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. So now from a lab point of view, I mean if they're if they're still testing with lots
3: of different labs do you care? <laughs> Well, I mean, I think we've got a reputation in the industry for putting out accurate numbers. Yeah. And so, so when it comes down to it, in certain cases, you know, because of, of label claims for edibles, for example, there's a, there's a limit to how much each edible can have and how much each, each pack can contain in terms okay. of their THC value. So in those kind of instances, you know, consistency and accuracy are very important. And so you know we've got we've got a decent amount of, of edible business, tincture business, you know things like that. What we've dropped off of in the last couple of years is flower business. Hmm. And you know so we we do care. Yeah. You know we we've we've had labs or sorry we've had clients tell us that the reason why they switched was because our THC numbers are too low.
2: Yeah. And so and so how does this play out, right? So you're going to have growers are going to shop the labs. They're gonna they're going to look for labs that either. Because of uncalibrated machines or or you know unscrupulous willingness to kind of juice the numbers, you're going to get product on a shelf that is, I guess, best case, just not as potent as you think. Worst case, actually contains you know uh, deleterious material inside of it that we really don't want from a public safety point of view. Like, how does this ultimately self correct, or what's the process for correcting this?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, there. I guess the kind of unfortunate way would be if, you know, someone got really sick from consuming a a contaminated batch. Right. And, you know, that kind of shone a light on the industry. And, you know, I, you know, again, we're, we're just talking about potency inflation here, but I would say that potency inflation and contaminant under inflation, um, or, uh, deflation, uh, deflation, (laughs) (laughs) um, go hand in hand. Right. So, you know, the, the, at the end of the day some of these labs they just they just want to get as many clients as possible as many as many samples as possible and whatever it takes to do that that's what they're willing to do. Yeah. So I would say on the on the regulatory side of things if we want to if we want to kind of stave off that kind of negative publicity you know it requires regulators to be a little bit more more proactive in kind of policing these labs and making sure they're not doing these kind of things. Yeah. yeah uh, and it kind of differs from, from state to state. you know right now we're, we operate in both California and Michigan and and they are on two completely different levels when it comes to um, you know these kind of monitoring these things. So in yeah. Michigan, you know one of the things that they've done is they've they've kind of set a soft cap on potency and it's not necessarily a cap but but basically uh, what it comes down to is if flour tests above a certain number and I think it's 30 percent. Then they they will generally do an audit. And it's not to say that they'll test it themselves, but they'll say, hey, look, you five labs go and pick up this product and test it as well. It's kind of like a second opinion. And and so that at least confirms or, you know, shows that the lab's producing a, an errant result. And, um, you know, we, we haven't been on the on the negative side of that kind of thing. So it's we don't know what the <laughs> what the consequences are necessarily, but but you know, at least the regulators have an eye on which labs are doing this.
2: So let me make sure I understand. So only if if you exceed a 30% number do they then verify it with a with a second lab? But mm-hmm. the, I mean, okay, so then everyone just starts reporting, you know, 29.999%, <laughs>
3: right?
2: I mean, <laughs> right, like right. the problem with one of these limits is like people will just you know, run right up to the limit, so they don't have to go to a,
3: of a course, second line. Yeah. yeah, so I think the the other side of that is to do. I mean, really, the only only uh, the only thing you can do is blind sample. So you you send you know the same blind sample. You know, the regulatory body sends the same blind sample to all the labs, and uh, you know, there's no labeling on it to show that it's a you know kind of a test sample. Mm-hmm. Um, and just get you know receive the the results from all the labs and. And see so, you know, kind of monitor bar. on that, yeah,
2: yeah. It's really it's. Um, I, I'm I'm going to forget the Latin phrase, but you know, who guards the guards? <laughs> <Right>? Like, like <laughs> you guys, you guys are supposed to be the guards to the quality. While well, someone's got to guard you, and it's like, yeah, I guess it, I guess it kind of goes back to the regulators. I mean, it, it seems. I think one of the challenges with cannabis, or one of the things that I, I think cannabis has done a reasonably good job of, or as they've at least attempted to do, is be reasonably self policing and self regulating. and that, you know, not not. Getting into a situation where, you know, the states or, I mean, ultimately, you know, if we get there, the federal government, you know, or, or various departments within the federal government are, are going to play a kind of a strong role on the regulatory side. And if we can maintain the regulators and the public's trust around, you know, the the industry's ability to self-regulate, that would be, you know, much better. It would be an unfortunate situation to get in cannabis if we, you know, that we get heavy handed or the regulators have to get heavy handed because we can't self-regulate on these things, you know, barring the regulators stepping up and yeah, doing you know blind analysis, or you know walking into facilities and starting to look at equipment and testing things and seeing what their calibrations and stuff are. Like, how is there a way that we can be better about self-regulating as an industry?
3: Well, honestly, I, I think you know maybe in, in you know some cases the state thinks the more labs the better, but in my mind, uh, quality over quantity. You know, if you have ten really good, really you know trustworthy labs you know, you wouldn't have to do as much policing. I mean, the policing would be easier, right? Because you would just have to keep a very close eye on 10 labs rather than a reasonably close eye on 40 labs, you know, that I, I, that would really help on the regulator side of things, but, you know, just decreasing the amount of competition and, and, and not making it such a business oriented decision for lab testing, Yeah, you know? Well, that works if you happen to be one of the labs. <laughs> you want to get
2: into the space, you know, you know that. True, doesn't, true. That doesn't, but then, like, then the
3: competition becomes, you know, which lab can be can do the most trustworthy work, right? Yeah. So that you can get chosen to be one of
2: those labs. So if you, you more know. of a limited license model, where look, we like we know as an industry, we only need ten or twelve labs, and you know, so we're only going to issue that many lab licenses, and then if for some reason you don't, or, or we're going to. We're going to drop the bottom lab every year or something like that to open up competition. I mean, I, mean, I guess I, I I could see that. How do, how do you see us moving to that model? How, how would that actually get implemented, give, given the fact that we already have, you know, 30, 40 labs and, you know, we have too many labs in the space right now? Is there a Darwinian process that we can go down to start eliminating some of the less scrupulous labs?
3: Well, I mean, so so the way most uh, most regulatory agencies work is they they give licenses on an annual basis and in mm-hmm. fact, I mean, that's another one of the uh, kind of interesting things about California is that we were supposed to be giving out all these provisional licenses and then transitioning to an annual license basis. But the, the that transition has been pretty slow. In fact, as far as we know, and, and we, there could be more information out there that we don't, but no. Mm-hmm. But as far as we know, there is not a single lab that's on an annual license. We're trying to be the first or one of the first uh, labs to get our annual license. I think we're in the final steps of that. But it, just in general, the the industry there's like all the licenses, uh, cultivators, you know, producers. I think only twenty five percent of the licenses are annual, and the rest are provisional. Um, and so, to get that annual license, you have to go through a lot of extra steps. You know, in terms of showing the state your validation data, and I think that would be a good step. And so, basically, it, you after a certain point. The, you just never you don't renew the provisional license and you you know you only allow the annual licenses to continue, so you can still keep giving provisional licenses, but you have to prove yourself within a certain period of time or your license doesn't get renewed. Yeah. I think that would be the the best way. Yeah, and um,
2: let's talk a little bit about kind of the trends going on right now in terms of what what's actually getting tested. I mean, we've got you know hundreds of cannabinoids in, in the cannabis plant. What um, you know we've talked about THC and and some of the pesticides, heavy metal kind of things that we're worried about, but what else is being kind of tested today? What What do producers want to know? What do customers want to know? What do dispensaries want to know in terms of what's actually in the product and how do we test for those things?
3: Yeah, it's very interesting. So I think, you know, in the industry, everyone wants their, their kind of niche uh, product that the only they and a few others sell. Mm-hmm. And so they can kind of corner the market on that. In some cases, that's just a, you know, a really inventive kind of delivery system, right? Uh, a new kind of edible or, um, you know, we've had people try to Get inhalers through the uh, the process. It's, it's been a little challenging for them. Cotton yeah. candy, we've seen, you know. Um, so <laughs> I'm
2: always so, curious how they test like pizza. I've seen people do like pizza, cannabis pizza. Like, oh, what are you like You going to slice this thing up and grind it and figure out how to test it? <laughs>
3: right. Yeah. So that that's been a challenge for sure. I think on the other end, people are working on you know isolating specific cannabinoids. So as you, as you mentioned, you know THC is the main one, but uh, you know obviously CBD is its own own thing. Uh, generally Related to hemp, but you know there's things like CBG and CBN, and you know, in a lot of cases those are cannabinoids that are that are extracted naturally from a plant, purified. But we are starting to see a good number of converted cannabinoids coming out, and so those are those are ones that are that are not actually naturally occurring in the plant. They're actually you're taking something like CBD and performing a chemical reaction to turn it into something else. And so I know kind of a hot topic of the last year has been uh, Delta-8 THC. Mm -hmm. And really, Delta-8 THC is not naturally occurring at all. You know, people make claims that there's some you know, minuscule amount of delta-8-THC. It may be true, but I think a lot of that might be coming in the in the, the processing. You know, you may be making a little bit of that. Oh, but, interesting. <laughs> but yeah, delta-8 has kind of been a big thing for a while. We're seeing samples of HHC, hexahydrocannabinol, THCO acetate. Um, and so those converted cannabinoids typically involve a little bit more chemistry. There's more processing involved. And, you know, in terms of the health Hazards of those things—that's uh, something we need to look at a little bit more closely. And in some cases, certain states are are just outright banning conversions. But you know, in other cases, you know, they they just they're turning a blind eye. So I don't think we should do either of those things. I think we should really figure out what kind of issues those conversions can entail, and make sure we're we're performing the right safety tests to you know ensure that those products are safe. Because right now, it's completely un- unregulated market. Yeah, and the worst thing that we're seeing currently is people converting to delta nine THC, which is the you know active form of THC we see in cannabis. Yeah, and and so what's happening there is rather than trying to you know enter this unregulated or poorly regulated market uh, for these other cannabinoids, they're actually trying to take this converted delta nine THC and kind of infuse it into the legal market. And what that's doing is because you can produce it from much more cheaply than extracting it from the cannabis plant, they're getting the prices are dropping and um, they're making it kind of a lot tougher on the, the legal cannabis industry.
2: So, to make sure I understand, so this is, you know, people are using what they're using CBD or hemp derived
3: mm-hmm. cannabinoids.
2: Mm-hmm. So they're using hemp-derived CBD, which is you know obviously much cheaper to produce. You know because you can you can do that anywhere. You can grow it in any state, and and there's no limits, and you don't need you know the kind of licensing that you do. So they take the CBD, and then in the lab they convert it to Th to delta nine.
3: Yep. Mm-hmm. And
2: then and then they so they convert it to delta nine, and then then use that in. Any kind of edible or any kind of product that's that normally would use an extract from from a THC cannabis plant and and kind of it's like the back door (laughs) into edibles. So Mm -hmm. and like how I guess how does the licensing work on that? So once once they convert it to delta nine, are they do they need a cannabis license or what's what's going on there?
3: Yeah, so I think what's happening is is those producers are then selling it to people that do have licenses. And those people are either mixing it in with you know kind of the the natural cannabis-derived delta nine, and then and then kind of getting it into the legal market that way, um, or you know they're just kind of I don't know turning a blind eye and yeah uh, seems shady yeah <laughs> yeah so and how do and can you test for that you can tell from a laboratory
2: point of view you can tell delta nine that's naturally derived from a cannabis plant versus delta nine that's
3: derived from uh, another cannabinoid. Yeah. So, because we think this will be a big issue in the future, we've been we've been looking at that really closely, and and uh, we, we believe we do have uh, certain metrics in place that yeah. uh, that tell us that uh, yeah. pretty clearly. Yeah. So we're we're gonna be, you know, we're moving forward with you know regulations and, and seeing what, what we can do on the the regulatory side. Uh, you know, that's it's kind of a, a current area of interest for us. Yeah.
2: And how do you see, you know, if and when we get some kind of federal, you know, change in federal status of, of cannabis, how is that going to impact the laboratory space?
3: I would hope that it kind of normalizes the the regulatory sphere. And what I would hope is that the the federal regulators will will look at best practices from each of the states and, and talk to, to labs that we have or that, that have kind of knowledge of, you know, pitfalls and not just labs, but, you know, just just in in each sector of the industry, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, to, you know, talk to the experts and, and kind of learn from this kind of quasi legal, you know, state legal, but not federally illegal kind of uh, period of time that we've been in, you know, we've been working with the NACB national association of cannabis businesses to kind of as a way of, of talking to regulators on a potentially national level and kind of giving our expertise on what we think needs to get, yeah, needs to improve.
2: Yeah, I know it's a tough one. I mean, we've, I think there's going to be a lot of changes, you know, if and when we get some kind of federal federal changes. Eric,
3: this has been a pleasure.
2: If people want to find out more about you, about the lab, what's the best way to get that information?
3: Uh, sure, you can just go to uh, infinitecal.com. that's our website, and you can always email me. We'll have my email address in the show notes.
2: Yes, yeah, the, I'll put uh, both the links the email, and email in the show notes. You can uh, get contacted. People can click through. Eric, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Yeah, thank you. That's it for this episode of Thinking Outside the Bud. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time.
1: You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter.
3: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.